Welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. Okay, welcome everyone. Uh, welcome to the June 2023 Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Education Research Journal Club. The PCRF promotes research literacy to advance the science of EMS educational research. So here with the PCRF Journal Club, we take a closer look at some of the latest research happening in medical education. A great big thank you to Limmer Education for sponsoring these podcasts so we can bring you the best of science in medical education. I'm Megan Corey, and I am here with Michael Caduce and Katie O'Connor, and soon to join us, Dr. Bill Toon. And today we are going to talk about this article that was published in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. It's entitled A Novel Point of Care Ultrasound Curriculum for Air Critical Care Personnel. Uh, thank you all for joining us today. By the way, this is an open access article, so you can pull this right off the internet um, and you know, take a look at this article. It's It's got some really good stuff in here. We're going to take a nice deep dive into one part of this uh, because this is an educator researcher podcast. We want to talk about curriculum design here. Thank you all for joining us. We want to remind you also that you can use the chat feature on your screen to type in questions and comments, talk to one another, and we'll bring any questions into the Q&A area into our conversation as we go. And remember, if you like anything, quote, tag, share, uh, hashtag EMS research, and at PCRF at UCLA. We always love when you mention us in there. Also, remember that if you miss any of these journal clubs or you get called away and you want to come back and replay them, you can go to our very own YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at PCRF at UCLA, and you can subscribe. And that way you can... Uh, if you miss something, you can go back and listen when you're not so busy. Uh, we have one other announcement here before we get started on this article, and that is you have one week left, exactly one week to get in your abstracts. They're due Friday, June 30th, and uh, this is at any kind of abstract, clinical, operational, educational, one week left in abstracts in any area of EMS research. Uh, next Friday. You can find all that information on our website at prehospitalcare.org. Also, make sure that you get a confirmation that your abstract is submitted. Uh, there was a glitch where, um, you know, some folks had tried to submit their abstract. Uh, I don't know how many, but um, it, they didn't get a confirmation. If you didn't get a confirmation, please remember uh, you can always resubmit it uh, and make sure you get that confirmation. We don't want to miss your research. So uh, get out there and, and uh, get that data in. You got a week left. That's plenty of time. You can do it. Um, all right. So let's get into this article here. The article we chose, again, a novel point of care ultrasound curriculum for air critical uh, care personnel. I chose this so we could dig into 
chat about curriculum design and validation and how to incorporate things like new technologies, new techniques into existing program curriculum. And before we came on today, I was talking to Michael about 12 leads, remembering some, you know, if you've been in education long enough in EMS, you remember when the introduction of 12 lead interpretation came into the paramedic curriculum. And, you know, I honestly don't remember what, you know, whether there was some deliberate design element of it or whether there was just a, you know, this looks good. Uh, 12 lead looks important because that we, there was some research that said it was, you know, it was important as a class one recommendation now for pre-hospital personnel to do this. And there you go. That's the, that's what I remember. And then I remember all of a sudden it's it's in the scope. All of a sudden it's in the, the textbooks and and not as not a whole lot of deliberate planning around the curriculum. And and I apologize if the, there are people out there that did do some of the original deliberate planning of the curriculum. But uh, Michael, what what do you think? We were talking about this. I, I think you nailed it on the head. And I think to, in today's world, Scarboza criteria is at the top of the list of some programs are likely teaching it and have a well-developed curriculum plan for it. And there's other programs that are like, well, it's starting to show up on the test. It's starting to show up in the textbook. I guess maybe we should throw it in there, but you know, does it really matter? Is it that important? What level of, you know, now we're going to spend all this time trying to teach our instructors on it. So I, I just, uh, I know we're going to get to table one later and you and I mm -hmm. are sort of nerding out over table one because it's, it's a format for curriculum development. And we're doing this right now with some IGEL stuff for our EMT students. So uh, thrilled to get into the paper. Um, and this is such a great pick, Megan. Yeah, the, uh, table one, definitely. And then, and pull this article. There's also a couple of appendices, which I always appreciate um, when they give you the extra uh, information. They actually share with you some of the evaluation tools that they use. So I, I, I really appreciate that. So you could actually take it and adjust things based on your learners and your needs. So, and and it is, this is the discussion about, um, you know, what, basing your curriculum on on the needs, on the outcomes, um, you know, how to map a curriculum. So we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. And then, and then also, of course, the study itself. So focusing on point of care ultrasound, we know that um, just specifically about that technology, I think everybody out there knows it's a non-invasive, it's portable, the um, the advancements in the technology and imaging itself have made this um, more uh, ideal for uh, reaching out into the out-of-hospital setting. It's been used and tested. Feasibility studies have been done and used in the military and in uh, some out-of-hospital settings. I know I was in Arizona and, and there was some use of, of point-of-care ultrasound and trauma. Um, there's some evidence too uh, that the um, the use in intra-abdominal hemorrhage and uh, detecting and treating chest abnormalities, especially severe ones like tension pneumothorax, have the potential to improve uh, care through transport decision making, treatment decision making. Uh, so I think that's uh, that's kind of the key for now the next step, which is so how did and this is what the the paper describes. The next step in their question development was how did you know what about the curriculum? So we turn to the literature to see what about the education research. Is there a curriculum development that's been tested or a curriculum uh, that has been tested? Most of the feasibility studies, or most of them were feasibility studies in the past on um, how to develop a standard curriculum. 
for point of care ultrasound in the out of hospital setting, but they use kind of standard cognitive sort of outcomes, the written exam scores and then opinion scores. You know, is it feasible? Could you do this in a pre-hospital environment? But didn't focus on uh, the element of the kind of translational science out to the clinical uh, area. And also, even before then, the clinical interpretability of the scans. So we talk about translational science here. We have sort of the and, and McGahee described it years ago in, in a great article on medical education as a translational science, describing T1, the first level of translation being in the classroom where in the lab where we study, you know, whether the effect of a curriculum, you know, improves certain outcomes like standardized tests and performance in a, um, you know, in a practical setting and that kind of thing. And then the second level being, does it change our clinical practice? Do they carry that into a clinical setting? Third level being, does it improve patient outcomes? And then fourth level being the community outcomes, you know, does it impact a community? So there's these levels and we do tend to, in education, hover around the T1 level first, which I think makes sense in many ways, but of course, what we're really after is the later outcomes eventually. And then uh, in that also is financial as well. What's the return on investment? So we've talked about that a little bit too. So all of those are, are things that I think are important. So then their next step was to say, we'd like to do this. We'd like to fill that gap, which is the uh, clinical interpretability. Can we you know, a define this proficiency, not just by exam scores and even OSCE scores, which is that obstruct, uh, um, objective structured clinical exam, that sort of uh, classic exam that's used in medical and, and residency programs uh, and applied to ultrasound. Um, can we do this, but can we also measure this in terms of their, their ability to get a clinically interpretable scan. So um, their question then was, can an investigational curriculum for point-of-care ultrasound impart proficiency in this skill to helicopter EMS personnel? So very specific to helicopter EMS personnel. Now, this is the, the, the slide that we were, or this is the table that Mike and I were talking about, and I want to bring everybody in on this because this, this is really the meat of of um, their methodology is to develop the curriculum first and developing a curriculum. I mean, there's no point in, in measuring outcomes of something that, that isn't well-developed. Uh, they use, they choose to use the model of Kern's six-step framework for curriculum design. And although it looks like there's steps that are linear, uh, classically, this is iterative. It goes back and forth a little bit. You know, when you're developing later steps, you tend to go backwards and say, are these really our goals and objectives and that kind of thing? And you can see that this is, if you've taken the NEMSI instructor courses, uh, especially the first level, you've probably gone through something like this, where you've been deliberate about developing a curriculum for something, starting with the needs assessment, the problem identification, whether or not that, you know, and that involves a literature search usually, um, you know, to identify any gaps that are out there. And then that targeted needs assessment itself, um, you know, what do the learners need your, you know, and this is where you kind of, you might get questionnaires or data or something that targets your needs. And then the goals and objectives. And that's kind of the, you know, goals are the larger statement, you know, the kind of, I want to be a better person kind of thing. And then objectives is, is the more specific, measurable uh, kind of outcomes. 
um, followed by the educational strategies and then uh, implementing and evaluating uh, the effectiveness of the curriculum. So that's that's Kearns. And I want to take a second before I, I bring Mike and Katie in here and just say, I want to give a plug. And I think Dr. Toon will be happy about this since I see he just joined us. The Society for Academic Emergency Medicine, and, and, and Bill always mentions them, uh, the the uh, amazing work that they do and the um, the conference that they have, they actually posted on YouTube one of their sessions, and I highly recommend it for educators. It's It was from last year's 2022's um, session, I think, their, uh, their conference, and it's called Beyond Kern's Six Steps, Curricular Design for the Advanced Educator. It's in two parts. It's about 45 minutes. Even part one is great. Um, and, and it's it, they go through the different because there are different ways to to design a curriculum. You have Kearns, you have Tyler's, you have Spices, you have one of my favorites, which is backward design, where you start with the outcome in mind and you work backwards. Um, and so I think there's many ways to do this, and I think it's a great thing to get educators together and say which might be a, a technique that you use based upon a number of things. Who are your learners? What is it that they're, you're trying to actually achieve in the end? So um, I'd like to ask Mike and Katie and, and Bill. Uh, Bill, I don't know if you're familiar with that that SAEM session uh, that was on, but that that is a terrific session. And again, look it up on YouTube. It's Beyond Kern's Six Steps. Um, great review of the different uh, methods of curricular development. So uh, Mike um, and Katie, you want to come on here for a second? I'd like to actually uh, go over um, one element of this too. Starting with you, you had just said, Mike, that you developed um, iGels for EMTs recently. So did you use sort of a similar process like this? I actually, as I was reading this, I was like, this takes me back to just what you said, Megan, which is my name C level one days of like, it's a needs assessment, right? Where are we missing the mark and how can we improve that? And the Kearns to me follows very much of that. Okay, we know there's something we want to do to improve. How do we go about doing it? Whether it's a lit search or, you know, developing curriculum is developing content, which is, is it a lecture? Is it a simulation? Is it case-based discussion? Uh, so that's what it took me back to. I should preface because many EMT programs include Super Gladic and at UCLA, we're just adding it. We've had it in our lecture. We're adding some skill stations with it now, and it's not in the scope of practice in California for EMTs, unfortunately. So, um, but we thought it was important enough that we add it to our curriculum, and thus we embarked upon this task of doing a needs assessment and saying, where are we missing the mark? How can we improve it? How can we make it happen? Um, the other thing I think is important that I really like about Kearns is it, it spends time looking at educational strategies to implement this. I said you can teach something a lot of different ways how you're going to teach it's so important and then the evaluation of did it work right okay cool we've done it but did it did it meet the educational objectives that we had written initially um, that's something i've going to ask as we get into this study a little bit more is what's the follow-up um, great it worked initially but is it you know is it still making the impact that you initially wanted it to make an impact if you're going to go to this much work to develop uh, educational curriculum measuring it routinely is ever so important I think what you said there too about your deliberate action toward um, developing the curriculum with the iGel, for example, there might be people out there that say, oh, it's easy. I mean, this is really easy. You open the airway, you put it in, you evaluate it, very procedurally oriented, right? 
um, it, rather than starting and saying, what is the ultimate goal? Why are you doing it to begin with? And what is the ultimate goal for that EMS provider? Because it's not just about the procedural skill. It's about the decision to, to yep. do the procedure to begin with. You know, it's about the preparation. It's about all kinds of things that, that go into it. And suddenly when you start peeling those layers back, you're having a big discussion of that. And, and this allows you to have that discussion with some kind of a, and uh, structure, right? Some yeah. sort of structure. And if in one of our conversation pieces, was, which I think is a great transition to Katie, is we were like, simulation does this way better than a lecture. Yes. Let's to get the needs for why should I be taking someone's airway? Why should I be inserting this? It's way easier to do it in a couple of simulations than in a lecture. And that's what our educators um, decided. And I think that that may segue into Katie, who I just saw unmuted. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I, well, so I actually did this. Um, I wrote a grant when I was at UCLA to get pre-hospital uh, pre ultrasound training to basically do something very similar to this. Um, uh, we got all the way through getting the equipment, getting people enrolled in the study, and then it was terminated. So like most like EMS research, right? Like we can't get it to the end point, um, mm. which I think is really unfortunate. But the uh, thing that I think was missing here was what you were mentioning, Megan, is like the, we can teach uh, it was talking about like monkeys to do a skill. That's the whole like intubation thing that just came out now too. Everyone's talking about like, we can make a trained monkey, put a tube in place or like to use the ultrasound, but it's the piece of, should we do this? When should we do it? And mm -hmm. is it actually going to be effective? And that, um, being in Los Angeles, it was huge because it doesn't really change the trauma center destination. Like it would in like a rural in Mon uh, Montana or Minnesota or something like that, you know? So they were like, why would you even do this? Because it's not going to change anything. And I think one of the things that we're seeing with some of the, the curriculum for pre-hospital ultrasound development, not necessarily in this study, but in a lot of the other ones that are all like this, that are all coming out now is targeted intervention. So mm -hmm. the part of Kern's here step that I think they're kind of missing is why would this matter? So they definitely showed that you can teach personnel, but they're missing the step of what is it going to do as far as the clinical implication and bill will jump in here and be like is it gonna be cost effective everything's about money um so mm -hmm. i you know what i'm saying like that's i think the piece they actually missed in their targeted needs assessment i i agree with you and bill i don't know if you can unmute at all but uh I, we've mentioned you a couple times i i agree um and i think bill will have that comment about resources as well in a number of areas here number one is running the research itself but uh, you know, nothing like dissing me when you're you're not sure if I can unmute or not. You know? <laughs> it's, it's kind of a good Both position. You. <laughs> yeah, you must they like. Would be proud. What do you say when What do you say when I'm not here? You know, that's what <laughs> I need to. That's what I probably really should be concerned about. Now, I, you know, I, I, I support everyone's comments, and I think that uh, Katie's last piece there is is important. I don't think we should do something just to do something. I think we should do something because there's a meaningful benefit and an outcome to it, you know, that it's going to change how we the change the overall patient outcome. And I think that that is an important part of the assessment that should take place. Okay. And, and I do agree. There's, there's probably no skill someone can't learn, you know, yeah. but it needs to be more than just the skill. It needs to be how is this going to positively impact patient outcome? You yes. know, and uh, not a, I don't care about statistical numbers. I care about how is it affect the patient. That's the ultimate patient-oriented outcomes. I think are are really important. And and they stated some of the rationale 
you know, why they thought it would be valuable. You know, and I, I you know, and I, I accept that that part. I, you know, we'll we'll talk more about it later, but you know, I have other concerns, you know, about any skill that's done. But I I liked what they've done here. You know, I like this this breakdown that they did. And and I'm I think I'm a little bit more like you as I like to work backwards. Yes. You know, tell me what you want and then I then I get then I work my way back to everything that needs to make that happen. So Yeah. It's iterative, you know, the curriculum design. It it shouldn't be, and this is why my problem with packaged uh products and no, you know, offense to our colleagues that make packaged products, but they are a, you know, they're a starting point that their um educators can still adjust and and develop and you know it's it's an it's an iterative ongoing process based upon a lot of things and a lot of it has to do with you know your educators and your learners and the ultimately like bill said that it's and again that's why i like backward design what are we trying to do to begin with what is the ultimate goal and and i agree with you in in the paper they do say and one of the most important ones i think they mention is the blood products now being carried. So if we start to see more and more research come out that um, blood products for intra-abdominal hemorrhage, you know, in the field, uh, you know, getting getting these in sooner, um, you know, makes a difference in patient outcomes. And more and more, we start to see this research. We, we definitely have seen some of it. And now we add on, well, it depends if they can, you know, that does point of care ultrasound improve the ability to actually detect those that are uh, where, where giving blood products is indicated. You know, when you start making those connections, now we're starting to see the, the link between patient outcomes. So they mentioned the potential for that. And I think we do a lot of things based on potential. Um, going back to the 12 lead thing, one of the things I don't want us to miss out on is we do a lot of things like, how does this, like Katie had said earlier, how does this matter? What you know, what, what difference is this going to make? If it's not going to change my care in the field, I, I have to say that always bothers me when people say, if I'm not going to do anything different, what's the difference? Well, one of the big points of 12 leads was to get the early reading before the treatment that we give to patients so that you get in the trends because 12 leads are dynamic. ST segments change all the time. T waves change all the time. They flip back and forth, you know? So um, to be able to get that early measure and the trending over time, um, that was, I thought that was one of the best arguments for 12 leads uh, beyond do we actually do anything different uh, with this patient who has chest pain or whatever. Um, And and of course the transport decision-making made a difference as well. So if this affects, if point of care ultrasound affects your decision to transport, like, like you said, in the rural area or whatever, uh, well, then that's Megan, one thing. Mm-hmm. One of the things, even with LA, cause like I, like that was the, the complaint everyone had is we don't need to do this. We're never going to use it. They don't need it. It's we're going to be in the hospital in five seconds. But if you look at a lot of the stuff, especially coming out of Texas and ultrasound, um, I think it's something like over 80% of um, the clinical decision-making was impacted when they use point of care ultrasound. And in, in yeah. 80% of the cases, it actually did impact care. Um, so I think that we've clearly established that ultrasound does impact how we treat things pre-hospital. And um, we haven't linked it yet to improve patient outcomes, uh, but it seems to be trending that direction. Um, I do think though, that the one thing that they missed here is that would have maybe been benefited from backwards thinking design is the limitation that they were talking about is 
this whole course was designed and then they realized they're like, yeah, but we didn't really do it in the setting of HEMS. And yeah. I think look at who was designing the course. It's hospital-based non-pre-hospital providers. They're like, oh yeah, we teach us, you know, ultrasound in the ED to our ED residents. We can do this for pre-hospital. And I think that this is like a huge trend across EMS education, right? We have uh, physicians and nurses like designing a lot of the curriculum, pushing out a lot of the um, objectives and standards. And, you know, and then it's like all of a sudden you're like, well, this doesn't really translate to the job. And mm-hmm. that's a piece of stuff in EMS we're missing a ton. Does this actually translate to somebody's bedroom at three in the morning? And that's, I think, backwards design really would help yeah. <laughs> getting that translation to job. Yeah. Mike. Um, I thought it was really important. A couple of things that have been said, actually, right back to the study, they very clearly in their curriculum development set some ultrasound goals. I think when we think ultrasound, there's like 10 or 12 things. I know I could list off the top of my head that I know that ultrasound can benefit. They very clearly picked a couple and said, that's what our primary focus is going to be. And I think whether it's IGEL, whether it's 12 lead, having that primary focus for 12 lead, we want the early recognition if they're having a heart attack. There's lots of other things that a 12 lead can do, but we're going to very clearly pick on the ones that we think help the most. And to the point, doing a fast exam, evaluating for blood in Morrison's pouch, oftentimes is a, tells you whether you've got a surgical emergency or not. Uh, so I think picking that and then picking whether or not they wanted chest wall expansion for pneumothorax, that that was another good one. And, and to me, mm-hmm. that's very much relevant to the air because it's much more difficult to hear. So being able to ultrasound for tension pneumothorax seems a lot more relevant. So they didn't do things like IV starts, which I thought, gosh, okay, they very clearly picked a couple of things and whether those are the best or the most research driven or not, they at least picked a couple of things and said, this is our target and that's what we're going to evaluate. I I think there's there's some appreciation to me in that. And you didn't take a wide swath. You picked the things you wanted to measure, measured them post-education, and and provided some great education. So that and they had uh, the the two most clinically significant, I think, and I think they really spelled that out well: the blood loss or the intraabdominal hemorrhage and the tension pneumo. Tension pneumo, I think, is great too because it lung sounds seriously. It, not even a helicopter, even in the field, um, you know, de- determining things. It, it, it's I, I'm you know very skeptical a lot of times that people are actually able to hear this even in a non-helicopter setting. So why waveform um, capnography is the gold standard. Yeah. 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 And there's other non-invasive. So um, just looking though, the educational strategy. So we had the goals able to describe the clinical indications, be proficient um, in getting clinically interpretable eFAST images. So that was one of their other objectives. And then um, that they would be proficient in interpreting images of the EFAST um, in their clinical significance in the context of their uh, practice. So that's, and then how do you measure those? So anytime you're coming up with objectives, it's how do we measure them? But then the educational strategies piece, and this is just, I, I was so happy that Katie, that you could come on with this because I thought of you and Mike said the exact same thing when we were talking. Oh, I hope Katie can can help us discuss this because this is where, I think the educational strategies is such an area of where an educator can be creative and you, this is where you can change things up all the time. It's not static. It's not, I get a standard set of slides. So now I can just read the slides or, 
um, I'm going to run this simulation that I make up off the top of my head or oh my that God. I have written out, you know, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Like, please let's not read slides. Like that is the worst educational strategy there is. Right. Yeah. Um, I loved how that they, they did, uh, two things that they, it was hands-on and like, I wouldn't say simulation, but you, I technically simulation, but they were doing mm-hmm. scans and practice scans, which is like a very level one style, um, simulation, but they allowed it to be either with an expert or on their own, but mm-hmm. either way they got focused feedback using like yes. a form. And I think that's something that we're missing a ton in EMS. And the, this is, I harp on it all the time with, you know, Chris Kroboth and we do all these podcasts about it, trying to get people to not just check the boxes and pencil whip a check sheet, but, um, to give targeted feedback. I, I looked at the appendix. I think that they could do a little bit better with their form and feedback, but the fact that they were reviewing the images and giving the, um, candidates like written feedback, that's key. They only had 16 people to do it with. So mm-hmm. way more feasible than like, uh, you know, when I was at UCLA, I had 50 paramedic students at a time, it would have been impossible. And even yeah. now I'm struggling with 25 students trying to look at their intubation videos and give them targeted feedback. But that's, I think the key, instead of just saying, oh, you were good. It was, Hey, yeah, this was clinically okay. Or your gain was too high or your gain was too low on this. Um, really that's the educational strategy thing is so important. And not to deviate too much from, from this paper, but I think you hit on something really important that, that Bill's always saying too, which is resources. And in order to do this kind of deliberate practice with mastery learning, where you have somebody that can provide the, an expert faculty to provide regular feedback, um, targeted feedback, uh, it requires a lot of resources. So one of the things you see in the scanning the medical literature is a lot of, is there an AI alternative or adjunct that can be added on? Is there a virtual adjunct that can be added on so that students can have some degree of feedback, but you don't doesn't require eight faculty at one time or you know uh, so many resources that we clearly don't have and aren't about to get overnight. So. Um, that's, yeah, I, I think that's, um, a real key is the feedback in this one and for what their goal was clinically interpretable. I think they did use the right people. That was their goal. If they set the goal, like we we've been talking about, maybe the goal of being able to do this in the pre-hospital setting in a helicopter. Now you need different people out there too, looking at not just the images. So that, that check sheet that they have in the appendix, um, the OSCE is really procedural. I mean, it's very much focused on the actual procedure. And so the people that were looking at it were not just ultrasound faculty, but I mean, or ultrasound techs or people good at the clinical performance of ultrasound, they were faculty and it says it in there. They were trained in the education of ultrasound, which I think is another key is it's not just you know, we talk about this about preceptors all the time, not just a person who's good at what they do in the field, but also trained as an educator. So I thought that was a really good point. They didn't just, it wasn't just, you know, people who do ultrasounds and know how to do and read ultrasounds. They were faculty who know how to teach it. So they had really good feedback. 
it was really targeted to what they were trying to do in that OSCE. Like mm-hmm. you won't see any like scene safe, BSI, like stuff that doesn't make sense for this skill. It's like yeah. this specific skill, let's target and test that. Um, it does miss the context of like the next step, right? Can, do you know when to implement this skill? But that's a whole separate level of learning, right? Mm-hmm. So we climb this hill first then we can climb the hill of, do they know when it's applicable in a patient care setting to use it? I think that's something we also kind of forget, right? That you need to be able to do the skill and then also be able to do the skill in context. And there's two different levels of learning. Exactly. And I think that's why I can, you know, we can say, okay, this is just level one. This is the very first level. And I really appreciate the detail they spent here because if they, if you skip it and you just have them go out in the field with it, we miss all of these little things. Do we even know if they can do it to begin with, if they can get good interpretable images first? The other thing I appreciated was the timeline. So here's the educational strategies. They did four one-hour video lectures. Um, they were separate. Uh, they could do, They were asynchronous and they were given a month to do them. So it was, okay, you have to complete these Four uh, one-hour lectures. They're they're foundational on you know the ultrasound equipment and concepts, um, the chest wall, the fast exam, some clinical applications and image review. And I don't know if they could go back and forth and review them more than once, but they I know that they had a month to do them. So um, you know it was it was not one of these you know go through this really quickly. So I don't know how. I'd love to hear how what they thought of just that piece of it. And then they had three formal practice sessions, but this is the part I loved. They were spaced evenly over one year, um, taught by expert faculty and using standardized patients. So they had, uh, so it was, you know, this was kind of the simulation, um, uh, level one simulation that uh, Katie was referring to, but I love the spaced practice um, because that is an evidence-based strategy. And that actually goes into your evaluation of the needs assessment. When you're doing a curriculum development, it's not just the evidence of the thing that you're teaching. It's the evidence of the teaching methodology itself. So, and I, and I loved that they used evidence-based educational methods here by spacing it over a year. The other thing I thought about with that was with the impatience right now in EMS education, um, it would be really a hard sell, which is absolutely tragic because this is a best practice um, to get people to slow down and teach with some deliberate, you know, education in mind. Sorry, soapbox. Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> um, you, I literally put a star next to this and put workforce um, issues. We're so pushed by agencies to get people through. I I wonder every day how much of this is sinking into their long-term memory as opposed to their short-term memory. Now, hopefully those that are going out there and doing it, this is sinking into their long-term memory and they are reaching mastery. But as I think through the five steps of psychomotor skills development, you're much more likely to get them to mastery by doing this over three or four months. I think also the fact that they had to do at least 25 and almost all of them did 25, maybe one person didn't do 25 ultrasounds, but they actually had to do them over this time period as well helps me tell or at least in my mind, makes me think that they're more likely to get to that mastery level and that this is sinking into their long-term memory as opposed to this is just something they're memorizing for a test that they're going to have in three days and then at the end of the month, they're done. So uh, I appreciate that concept. And for the the educators out there, again, this is the evidence-based practice. This is what's driving us towards long-term recall and retrieval. 
Mm-hmm. It, it makes me think that we need to be working more and more with the employer partners um, because the expectation of the students coming out of initial education and into their internships, um, you know, that has to match what, what, you know, the expectation and then the employer picks up the ball from there, right? We don't have structured validated new grad programs um, and residency programs like medical and nursing education do. Um, So, you know, there's gotta be some developing partnership there. So, is this the training that occurs at the at the employer level? Um, you know, and in that case, they need educators that are expert educators, so or master educators. It also matches the much more of the continued competency model where we're focusing in on what people are lacking as opposed to just giving everybody the same because uh, 12 leads are example for the day. It's just the uh, okay, it's a reminder of how to do a 12 lead, which most people actually are pretty proficient in. But are we adding to their scope of knowledge and are we evaluating, okay, this group of people didn't do their 12 leads within 10 minutes of recognition of chest pain? Why not? That class needs to be about why they should be doing it instead of a review of where the leads go. Um, yeah. So this also practices that model, which I think we're going to see more and more of as we look into the future. Yeah. And I, we looked. Go ahead. I mean, to say the continued competency thing I, is exactly where we're headed here. But one thing to really take a note here is the educational strategies are not about how much time was spent in front of something. Mm-hmm. So they're saying like, we want to do this many scans, not they spent two hours reviewing. Like it's not about time. It's about the quality of what you're doing, not the quantity necessarily. Thank you. Um, also, uh, we looked at a study once that integrated cognitive and psychomotor together. So you can do both at the same time. And I think some of these informal practice sessions, um, can do some of that as well. Um, and then they, they looked at, uh, they, they administered, uh, the, uh, you can see the, the implementation, they did a a pre-curriculum OSCE, pre-curriculum, you know, the pre-post test thing, which it's the same test. We know how that usually goes. If you give a written test before without any knowledge, and then you, you know, you start your educational program, then you give a post-test, um, classically the scores go up. Um, they did it with the OSCE as well, though. I think that's interesting because people had no prior (laughs) sonography experience can't imagine being handed an ultrasound. Um, you know, with no knowledge, I'm pretty sure it would be like miserable, <laughs> the score. I, I wondered so. to Megan, two people passed the written test and yeah. they, they did tell us how many people actually have ultrasound training and it's very, very minimal. I was like, it always, it would make me question my exam. If people with no knowledge are coming in and passing it, maybe they did a bunch of research ahead of time yeah. or they were like really excited about it. So they went and did their own research, but I would want to just double check my exam to ensure it was rigorous enough. Um, yeah. I don't but, think their exam is, they have some problems with the exam. It would be a limitation of their study. They have a lot of like uh, yes or no questions and mm-hmm. a lot of just like open-ended that don't actually really apply to like ultrasound. Right. So there's like a question on the test, which, which of these things could cause free fluid in the abdomen. And you don't even need to know anything about ultrasound to be able to answer that. So I think there's a little bit of problems with that test, but. Yeah. They mentioned that um, they probably passed the anatomy and physiology related questions, um, which some of them really were, even though they had a scan in front of them, they were really not even about the scan. So um, yeah, it, it's, the, but all of that is actually in the appendices that you guys can pull. Um, so let me get into the, the results and then we can, we can see, but they, uh, had uh, 10 critical care nurses. Let's look at the demographics table here. They had 10 critical care nurses, four critical care paramedics, and two who are both, um, all of them completed the initial training, um, 
only one uh, was did less than the minimum required 25 practice scans. They did 24. Uh, so, you know, not, not too bad. Uh, you can see the breakdown, mostly uh, men. You can see the breakdown of the qualifications and previous ultrasound training. We got a little bit of this, these percentages in here, one to five hours, 18%. Uh, so maybe those are the ones. I wonder if those are the ones that did really well on that previous thing. Okay. So now we've got the the proficiency, the clinical proficiency measures. And essentially here, this is the pre-test, post-test uh, at the top. So pre-intervention, post-intervention. And um, one of the things I, and I, you know, we've looked at studies like this before where you see pre-test, post, you know, post pre-intervention, post-intervention. Um, and so we have the written test at the top and then we have the OSCE uh, and then we have uh, some other measures of, uh, you know, not just looking at the raw score, but looking at how many critical fails, um, you know, how many practice sonographies and, and their mean scores, uh, which they show you in the appendices what that means. It took me a little bit to read, you know, through that. And then they wanted to look at how, you know, how um, associated are, look at the Pearson correlation coefficient, see, are they associated, practice scans associated with the their scores on uh, doing the eFAST and the chest um, sonography. And then was practice scans associated with the interpretability, the clinical interpretability of the eFAST and chest scans. So looking up at the written tests, um, I think the, the big thing that struck me is the range. Uh, obviously they're gonna do better. I mean, I, that wasn't a big surprise, but the the range and and I think that's really important. We've seen this in other kind of research on on educational equity to see that students can come not only into the passing range, but the range of the scores can, can reduce. So in the pre-intervention, you had, you know, the standard deviation of, of 12 um, with a, you know, the score, a minimal score of 45% versus, you know, all the way up to 88%. And then in the post-intervention, it's 71%. So now you're getting everybody passing up to 94%. So not only you're getting everybody passing, you're dropping that range. So the range of, of scores reduces, which I think is a, a great measure of, of success in terms of educational equity. You know, are you, are you serving the needs of multiple students? So I don't know if you guys, if anything stood out for you in this part of the table. Uh, let's see. And then the OSCE, the same thing. You had an improvement. I, that I, would, I wouldn't be surprised at because if you weren't familiar with the OSCE is very procedural. So if you weren't familiar with the procedure um, very much, you know, it would be, um, you know, obvious that you would improve after some training. And with the feedback, the guided feedback, I think that was really key. Bill, did you have something? Yeah. So one of the things that would have been interesting is to know the number of years in clinical practice for each mm -hmm. of the uh, participants because it's not there. But you get a little guess when you look at what the median age of the practitioners are, which I thought was interesting. So I, I get a feeling these may be more experienced practitioners too. Small group, I agree with that, but there's a chance they're um, more experienced than again the typical, you know, um, practitioner. And it is heavy towards the nurse end of the uh of the scale with this this small group here. So there's a lot of, there's interesting things I, I have about the group, one of the biggest challenges, and they talk about it in their limitations, is that, you know, this was just one center, one place, and they, mm -hmm. they realized that. So yeah. it, again, it would be interesting to see how it goes over time. But I just thought that, that I would like to have known their 
years of experience would have been interesting to add into that. So, yeah. I think that's really yeah. important, Bill. Inclusion criteria. They also said they emailed and asked at staff meetings. So you got volunteers, which always means they're going to perform higher because they want to be there. I don't think that discredits any of what they proved in the study, but I do think inclusion criteria is always important. They did not have anybody that was on probation, um, which means, again, your newest providers were excluded from participating. So I do think that probably is going to shift your results a bit, which again goes back to my like, they people were passing your pretest with a good score that could be part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really important. So um, the clinical proficiency at the bottom here, we've got that Pearson correlation coefficient, and you're seeing a weak but positive association between the increased number of practice scans and the average OSCE score for both the FAST um, and the chest scans. And then a stronger um, score down here, you can see those uh, stronger scores um, for a uh, number of scans performed and the number of interpretable um, sonography um, readings. So for, for both the FAST and uh, the chest scans, and that's actually shown in their linear um, uh, graph here as well. I would have loved to have seen it sort of from the beginning and get this, this always reminds me of the Eureka point, you know, when does somebody hit competency? I actually really appreciated that they had these numbers too, because we do have that, you know, in medical education and in uh, certainly in EMS education, we have these, you know, kind of numbers, what numbers do we need to, you know, on average to achieve a minimum competency? Um, and, and we think about that, okay, again, going backwards from that, if that's the, you know, the, the score or the numbers that we're looking for going backwards from that, how, you know, how do we design a curriculum to ensure that the majority of our, or all of our students do achieve minimum competency by the time they hit that, you know, number of 25, um, are there any outliers there and what do they need and that kind of thing. So this linear, um, you know, image, this data visualization is supposed to indicate the um, number of clinically interpretable scans by the number of scans performed. And that was the one that they saw uh, the high level correlation with. And then finally, they had a um, the survey. Of course, you always have a survey at the end, too, to kind of see what did the people who are actually doing this, the 16 subjects, think about, you know, the... Um, and it looks like 11 answered the um, rate, the score or the survey. And, you know, how did they feel about it? And they broke it down into the lecture component. Was it useful? You know, was it difficult? They had, they had multiple different, I'm always worried when, when you have questions that could be answered agree or strongly disagree and you, and you change them positive and negative, because um, I think you're supposed to do that in survey development. I'm not sure, but uh, you it really relies on people reading. I don't know if you guys have ever done surveys where a person puts strongly disagree, and then they write glowing recommended glowing comments in their text field about something. You're like, yeah, I think they read those numbers wrong or those categories wrong. Um, I would have liked to have heard about, and I don't think they had a text field either about things that they would suggest, um, but I did notice the the two areas. I feel as though, and this gets to what you guys have been talking about, I feel as though I'll be able to maintain my ultrasound skills. I mean, again, it's, it's still in the strongly agree um, area, 73%, but there's, um, you know, and, and it's only eight people. 
but there's a neutral and strongly disagree um, in that. And then the other one would be, I've gained enough knowledge and experience to comfortably use ultrasound in flight to make clinical decisions as they pertain to lung and, and fast uh, ultrasound exams. Um, and again, surveys, we, you know, Dave Page always, we, he and I always talk about these ones. And we looked at that one study, the hybrid airway study where, you know, students said, yes, I'm proficient. I'm confident I can do this. And then and another group said the same thing, and the two groups were completely different on their outcomes. So confidence doesn't necessarily mean competence. <laughs> uh, I agree. I, surveys are, are one of my favorite things to look at, especially if you if people just check the first box on the left, which oftentimes is strongly disagree, and you're like, why do you not agree? Uh, I wonder if that's what made question number two so disagree or strongly disagree, though I do think if these are if this question is legitimate and most people disagree um with some of these questions it's probably worth asking why they did say they had some open text fields but we didn't get any of those results hmm. so i'd be interested yeah, to know i don't know that their open text results were about the survey or were about the test um they may have been just about the test but um i, I would be interested to know why why this was the case i also i liked the chart that they showed I, I was thinking eureka moment as well, but I was wondering, is 25 the eureka moment? I, there, I don't know that there's literature out there to suggest that, but I wish they would have pushed it back farther. So you would have seen maybe at ultrasound number 20 or 15, at some point in time, they're reaching competency. We've sort of mm -hmm. assumed it's around number 25 because that's the one they did, but I wish they would have pushed their chart back to sort of shown, you know, if they were competent at number five, that's important to know, or or we need to increase this the um, discretion on our two, on our OSCE, um, yeah. would be my thought. So, yeah. Um, so they're, they're, um, I think their logical next step and they mention it is to, is to take this to the field to see that kind of practical application. And Mike or Katie, can you guys see the, um, I see numbers around the chat and Q and a, but I can't see those fields without blocking yeah. everything on the screen. Um, Benji has a really good question. Um, he says that, do you believe ultrasound should have a higher priority in initial paramedic programs than skills like needle surgical crike? And I'm hundred percent with Benji on this. Like, I definitely think so. I think this is actually an example of where, uh, we have a problem with EMS education and the way we accredit programs, the way we make standards, it's just not on pace with the field. Right. So we have states that rule into the, right into the, they're like title 22 in California, you must teach this and it's state mm -hmm. law and it doesn't even apply to what we're actually doing in the field. Mm -hmm. And oh my God, backboards and sked, when can we give this shit up? Like, know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so we're, we're stopped teaching it or at least like the, our crediting body is making us check the box that we taught that, even though we know that it's not clinically relevant, let alone even safe. Yet we have ultrasound here, which is shown, and this is one of actually like tons of studies. They're, the people out of San Antonio have been doing this for years. We have studies in 2019 showing the feasibility of ultrasound training and its applicableness to the field, right? And just not in only in EMS, and the military EMS has been doing this for years before that. But yeah. we have nothing in EMS education curriculum that says anything about ultrasound. And it's just, to me, that just shows we're doing needle crike, which PHGLS just came out and says, don't do, it's not helpful, it's harmful, but we have to check the box in paramedic and initial education that our students have done this this many times. It's just ridiculous. 
I think it's a great opportunity to to involve your advisory committee if you're on a paramedic, mm-hmm. if you're at a paramedic training program, ask who's doing this in the field. I, I would I strongly advocate that ultrasound is a great skill, but I want to know what they're doing it for, right? I th- there's 10 or 12 things I can think of that you would use ultrasound for. What are the providers in your area doing it for so that you can focus your education on that instead of sort of a wide swath of here's the different things that ultrasound can do? Um, that, that would be my thought on how to incorporate it into a program based on the local needs of the community. For sure. And and the other thing is to make sure that, and I think the advisory committee is key to what uh, Katie is saying too, because um, I think a lot of program directors in in paramedic programs in particular are are thinking that they have to do things that are in a a matrix or something. And and if your advisory city uh, or committee says, this is not even allowed in our state. And yes, I know you have to teach to a national standard, but we want to suggest that we reduce the numbers in this area uh, and focus the numbers in this area. Or we want you to do, you know, uh, more work on social determinants of health and, you know, communications um, because they're coming in, they can't communicate with people of, you know, a variety of age groups and cultures and everything else, um, then that's, you know, that's the push. And then it's really got to come from a couple of areas, the program, the, the physician leaders out there um, uh, who need to, you know, use the evidence too to drive it. Because one of the things I think um, to, to Katie's point is we're using the national registry practice analysis, which says what we do, not what we should do. So, um, when we use the practice analysis, which is a great thing, the the next level is what's the evidence of what we should do. Bill? Yeah, it's an interesting thing that I I I believe there's the, the strategy I would recommend within programs is almost following that hazmat concept. I think there needs to certainly be at minimum an awareness of advanced practices that are changing within, you know, while they're in school, you know, that there is such a thing as ultrasound and here's the things that they are. And, and then I, I do think there's gotta be some responsibility to when the, someone goes within to a system that they get credentialed within their system. If that is part of their practice, you know, you talked briefly before about the employer's responsibility after someone graduates, if you're not going to give the programs the amount of time to cover the material that needs to be covered, then someone's going to have to pick up that torch, you know, otherwise you're going to end up with programs where there is no, (laughs) I wonder what a program can teach someone, you know, because we're not allowed, we know that much of what we teach now, we don't have enough time, not time necessarily, but to develop the level of competence we'd like our practitioners to have before they graduate. You know, and if we keep adding things in there, uh, something's going to have to come off the plate or give. And, and I, I think that that's, I, I, think, I think part of it is the way that we like even think about education in paramedicine. Because if you look at things like physics, which is a completely different field, I get it, but like an academic field, you have students and graduate students who are pushing the level of information, who are creating the new information. We're not waiting till they get into the field. Granted, in physics, like 
there are places that are, are commercial, right? And that they're applied science that are pushing it in industry, but education also pushes the boundary, right? We got people building robots at, you know, Harvard and all those places that are going to eventually all revolt and kill us probably. But, you know, we have AI being pushed in education. And for some reason in paramedicine, we don't value education, right? We're still debating, should you even have a degree, let alone should we have education in paramedicine pushing the boundaries of what we're doing and doing research like we see in Australia. So I think we need to shift the paradigm here and say that education is a place where we can create new things, not just teach to what they're doing in the field. Yeah. Now, I think I think we're saying the same thing, Katie. We should be articulating it differently. I don't disagree with your type of uh, approach that you're talking about. But programs don't even have the freedom to do that, you know, um, because they everyone, you know, how many people go back and says, well, that's ACLS. So we've got to cover ACLS. And I think that that's the biggest bunch of malarkey that exists in the world. You know, um, I, I have no place in my life anymore for merit badge programs. And I think that they're a total waste the way they are developed on to, to be dealing with EMS providers. That's just my opinion, I would rather us do exactly what you're talking about, is we, the National Association of EMS Educators, I really believe, should be driving what should be EMS education. But we're getting off point here. I want to get back to this, and I'm just going to close because I'm looking at the time right here. Katie and I, we can debate this longer at other venues. But the the bottom line is, is I think I liked what the authors did. I think it's a great starting point. I think they talk about their limitations. And I still think this is totally an emerging, an emerging field. And I'd like to see it done well. And I'd like to see it at, that how it can positively improve patient outcome for what we do in the field or how it can speed along the patient's care when they arrive at the hospital. But, you know, there needs to be something. We shouldn't do it just because we can do it. We should do it because there's a reason behind how we can make it better for the patient, either directly for us, why we care for them, or speed their care along when they arrive at the hospital. So I do thank the authors for, for their work they've done here. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, I think thanking the authors, too, for uh, for some of the, the specificity about their and really putting all of their educational tools out there so that we can look at them and see you know, is this something that, that to duplicate if anyone's out there interested in doing this type of research? This this is an actually a very resource intensive one because you had all those experts on board. And, and I do appreciate that they used a multidisciplinary team, except I will say, would have liked to have seen a paramedic and uh, critical care nurse on the authorship team. Um, so that, that would have been another little addition, I think. If we're really interdisciplinary, it, it, this one was really Department of Emergency Medicine and Radiology that, that ran it. Um, be nice to have some of the helicopter uh, practitioners, the critical care nurse and, and paramedic or both, since some, some people have both, uh, on the authorship team and on the, uh, the research team. So that, that, I think, is another piece. Uh, any other comments as we are uh, starting to close out here our discussion on uh, and again I would I, I want to plug that uh, I don't know if you were on Bill but that uh, SAEM YouTube uh, 
video on uh, from 2022's meeting on uh, Beyond Kern's Six Steps. If you're interested in some medically relevant uh, curriculum design discussion, it's called Curricular Design for the Advanced Educator as well. So that applies to you out there. Uh, if you can get onto YouTube and check that out, that's actually a great you know, 45 minutes spent on a review of different models of curriculum design. Michael. I would just say, oh, sorry. Uh, sorry, Michael, I'll cut you off. But um, I would just say that this is one of many different studies in pre-hospital ultrasound. And if you're even just interested, or you're thinking that there could be some type of use for your agency, I would really recommend getting out there and looking at some of these because there's things like looking for beelines for CHF and distinguishing what type of dyspnea they're having that have been shown to have really good impacts on patient outcomes in the hospital. Um, and CHF is an area where we're looking at for return admissions um, and alternate care destination and like how you can get more uh, funding. So there's just lots of different things, not just trauma. Um, so I think this is an area where if you think, have any inclination that your agency could use this, you should get into the research because there's just so much out there. Yeah. Mike? Uh, I think great. I would just add that if you're looking as an educator to do curriculum design, you've got a great model here to follow. There's certainly other ones, but this is a pretty straightforward model um, and really sets you up for success. And I'll echo what Megan says. You can follow it straight through. You can jump around. Or you'll probably feel like you're jumping around in it when you start doing it, but this is a great model to follow if you're looking for a model to do curriculum design. Great. Thank you, everybody. Mike, uh, Dr. Toon, Kat, Katie, uh, for joining us. And thank you for joining us. We are going to take a break in July. We're educators. We're giving you a break in July. We had two journal clubs in June and you can head to our YouTube page, maybe, um, you know, to check out some of our prior um, uh, episodes uh, while you're on your break in July. And we will be back in August. More details on that because remember the NEMSI conference is coming up in August. We hope to see you in Reno. And if not, we will see you online. But there is another podcast, um, the next PCRF Journal Club that's with Dr. Remley Crow, Dr. Antonio Fernandez, Monday, July 10th. So don't forget that one. And that's going to be a good one. I can't remember the topic off the top of my head, but it was good. You can register at prehospitalcare.org. And again, visit our archives and visit that YouTube channel. So we'll see you and the educator educators back in August. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at www.pcrfpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website at www.prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsor, Limmer Education, providing education tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey.